0: Luke chapter 3, 7 to 18, we come on the scene and John the Baptist is in the wilderness baptizing people. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, what should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The end of the world is a pretty common theme in pop culture. A quick Google search pulls up lists of 50 or 75 or 22 top hits that deal with the idea, including It's the End of the World as We Know It by R.E.M., The Final Countdown by Europe, and 1999 by Prince. Pre- or post-apocalyptic movies are everywhere, like War of the Worlds, The Day After Tomorrow, and Interstellar. And then there are songs that ponder how one would live if they knew that their time was short. Would you live each moment like your last, rasps Nickelback. And Tim McGraw, faced with mortality, croons about skydiving, rocky mountain climbing, and going 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. Well done. On the whole, the human species doesn't really like to dwell on the idea of dying. But we do seem to be pretty fascinated with the question of how we should live if we knew that the end was near. And this is no new phenomenon. According to the Gospel of Luke, People have been asking questions about how to prepare for the end of the world for a really long time. One such conversation comes up because a man named John has appeared on the desert scene, baptizing people and preaching a rather apocalyptic message about the need for repentance. This John, who we now call John the Baptist, was a cousin of Jesus, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who gave birth to John when they were much too old for such a thing to be possible. And now John, set apart by God through this miraculous birth, has been called by God into ministry. He travels throughout the countryside, living a simple, unrefined life calling people to repent and baptizing them. And word gets around of this itinerant baptizer and crowds of people start coming out to John to receive this baptism. Only they receive a rather frosty reception from this miserly minister. Our scripture passage begins with the words, John said to the crowds. And this reads to us like a simple one and done past tense situation. John said this. But in the original Greek, the word said is in the imperfect tense, which means that this was a recurring event. This isn't just something that John said once to one group of people. This is a sermon he was preaching regularly as one group after another came out to him. And it's a sermon that begins with a bit of a bite. We can well imagine the scene. John stands waist high in the Jordan River. Crowds of people jostle each other on the riverbank, vying for a spot. Eager to be the next person to receive this baptism they have heard so much about. To participate in this new religious trend. John sends a dripping young man off to the shore after dunking him in the water, and he looks up at the buzzing, excited crowds and shakes his head. You brood of vipers, he yells at them. The crowd probably goes a bit silent, taken aback. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now, a lot of people have interpreted brood of vipers in a very negative way. Particularly because in Matthew's version of this story, John is saying this just to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we love to think of the Pharisees and the Sadducees as being terrible people. And vipers, of course, are dangerous creatures. They're sly, they're sneaky, and they're lethal. They are to be avoided at all costs. But there is another way to interpret brood of vipers. When vipers, when these snakes are born, they huddle together as infants, one big mass of tiny snakes. And this is called a brood. Only when there is a threat, a fire, a predator, a great storm, do they then scatter and flee, going their separate ways. So when John calls the people a brood of viper, he's perhaps simply saying you are all sensing that something is changing, that what was once safe is no longer safe anymore, and you have come scurrying out to me in the hopes that this baptism will save you from this impending doom. But if that's the case, if that's what the people hope for, then they could not have been more wrong. Repentance isn't a one and done kind of thing. Baptism isn't some magic rite cloaking people in a protective shield against what is to come. They can't even rely on their heritage, on having Abraham as their father, on being part of the historic people of God to save them. The axe is already at the root of the trees, John says. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. It doesn't matter what I do, John is saying to them. The apocalypse has come and it's you all who need to be doing something. And so the people, probably at this point a bit anxious and afraid, say what any reasonable group of people would say to this proclamation. They ask, well, okay, what should we do then? And you would think, given John's end of the world, fire and brimstone, axe cutting down trees kind of preaching, that he would pull out some equally intense and dramatic proclamations in response to this question. Spend all of your time in prayer that your soul might be saved, we would expect. Or, or go and overturn all of the corrupt religious structures, or sell everything you own and begin a life of asceticism. But Don doesn't say these things. He tells people, share what you have. He tells tax collectors, don't be greedy. He tells soldiers, don't blackmail people. Scott Jose says that John sent every person who came to him back to his or her regular life, regular activities, regular vocation, and then told each person, do what you have been doing, but do it better. Do it more honestly, do it as an act of service for others. Share what you have, John says. Be honest and above board in your work, John says. Be faithful to whatever task is yours to perform in life, John says. In a way, says Jose, what John's words boil down to is simply be nice. That's it. Be nice. The people ask what they should do in the face of the great ax standing ready to topple the nice, comfortable lives they have built for themselves, and John says, be nice. And he says this in part because the world isn't actually ending. There's no need for complete mass hysteria here. But the world as the people know it, that's what's ending. The Messiah is on the scene and he brings with him a new kingdom, a new way of doing things, a new world, which means that the old order of things, the old world is passing away. The old world where justice is so often neglected. The old world where billionaires and starving people coexist the old world of violence against women, the old world of fraud and offshore bank accounts, the old world of invading armies, that world is coming to an end. The crowds on the shore think that maybe John himself is the one who will usher in this new world, but John quickly dispels of that notion. There is one who is coming, he says, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to touch. And while I baptize with water, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And this is a foreshadowing of the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended upon believers in the form of fire, beginning a new chapter in the life of the kingdom. But it's also a foreshadowing of the day of judgment. The word for spirit is the same as wind and John alludes to this in his next words where he says the Messiah will be like a a farmer gathering in his crop of wheat And when a farmer does this, he moves the wheat from one container to another so that the heavier wheat kernels remain, but the light chaff blows off into the wind to be burned up and discarded. Pastor Chelsea Harmon writes Jesus comes in the incarnation filled with the Holy Spirit, living a life of purity. And he will come again at the final judgment where the Spirit will again use a purifying and refining fire to bring an end to everything in this world that does not belong in the good news kingdom. And so she asks, when the world ends and all that is left of you is what is of God and his kingdom, Will you be able to recognize yourself? Like the crowds on the banks of the Jordan River, this question could cause us to rise up in some great anxiety, stirring in us a need to do something great, something noteworthy, something to prove that our lives have in fact borne good fruit, something to save us from this day of judgment. But when we ask in the face of this alarming news, well, what should we do then? John's words remain the same. Share what you have. Be honest and above board in your work. Be faithful to whatever task is yours to perform. Be nice. Which doesn't really seem like it's enough, does it? We feel like there should be more, like we should have to do more in this kingdom that has changed the whole world. We should need to be part of that change in an equally big and dramatic kind of way. We should give up our careers for a life of missions. We should spend our weekends campaigning for various causes. We should sell all of our possessions and downsize to a tiny home so we can give more of our income to charities. This is what John's preaching makes us think that we should do. And all of these are good things to do. If the Spirit is leading you to do any of these things, follow that leading. But also trust that the Spirit is using you to be part of the revolutionary, world-changing kingdom of God when you are putting chicken nuggets in the oven for your kids or charting data on an Excel spreadsheet, or planting a bush in your front garden. Scott Jose says this, when people come to ask John what the coming of all this change means for them in their ordinary lives, John sends them back to those ordinary lives as changed people. He sends them back not necessarily to try to change the world on their own and not necessarily to assume a new set of spiritual practices and ambitious projects the likes of which they'd never dreamed of before. Nope. John just told them to do what they had been doing all along and do it better. To do it all in ways that somehow color inside the lines of God's good creation in ways that, little though they may seem to, will be part of that grander work of cosmic renewal. And it will be part of that grander work of cosmic renewal because the kingdom is ultimately not our kingdom, but God's. And it will be part of that grander work of cosmic renewal because God has filled us with his spirit, has brought us into his family, has brought us into his kingdom through baptism. Which means that whatever ordinary faithfulness we offer is in fact the fruit of the spirit at work in us and is therefore part of God's renewal of the whole world. One of my favorite liturgical prayers is from a book called Every Moment Holy, and it's called, A Prayer for Those Who Have Not Done Great Things for God. Here's a snippet of it. It is not you that will do any great thing for God, but God laboring in you and through you who will greatly accomplish his own good purposes according to the workings of his sovereignty and love. Be liberated now from this burden of believing that anything depends on you. And so be liberated at last to give yourself to his joyful service in grateful response for the grace he has lavished upon you. You have till now been too invested in the results of your own efforts as if those outcomes were a thing you could ever know or measure in this life. Be invested instead, child, in simple obedience to your king and in long faithfulness to his call, shepherding daily those gifts and tasks and relationships he has entrusted to you regardless of outcomes and appearances. He will bring all things right in his way and in his time. All he asks is your willingness. Shepherd daily, those gifts and tasks and relationships he has entrusted to you, trusting that he will use such faithfulness to bring all things right in his way and in his time. On May 19, 1790, a combination of smoke from forest fires and a thick fog and general cloud cover brought about a deep and unusual darkness over the New England states from about noon on that day to midnight the following day. Scientists now know what caused this darkness, but at the time, a lot of people were convinced that the Day of Judgment was upon them. And in the state of Connecticut, the Governor's Council, which is the precursor to the State Senate, was meeting on May 19. When the darkness descended, people began to clamor and fuss about adjourning this meeting, this gathering, so they could all return to their homes and pray. And then one member named Abraham Davenport stood up. I am against adjournment, he said. The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for an adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish therefore that candles may be brought. Candles were brought. It is the end of the world as we know it. The kingdom of justice, peace, love, faithfulness is upon us. And one day, the Messiah will return to judge and strip away everything that is not of God and his kingdom. And so as we live as citizens of this kingdom and as we anticipate that day when Christ will come again with a purifying fire, may we do the duty to which he has called us. May we live in simple obedience and long faithfulness to the one who is renewing all things. May we do the work he has called us to do, the work of parenting and teaching and manufacturing and studying in ways that color inside the lines of the kingdom, in ways that promote justice and peace and faithfulness and love. So in closing, would you join me in the concluding words of the prayer for those who have not done great things for God? Now, child of God, avail yourself of his spirit that you might go and learn to love God and love others, practicing his mercies daily. There is no greater work appointed to you. May he strengthen and encourage you and lead you gently in that good way. Go in peace now to do his will, amen. Amen. To Christ be the glory, Amen. amen, amen.